how are we revering his name and his perfections each and every day of our lives? See, it's not just for this one hour on Sunday mornings. Are you looking for meaning or a word from God that's relevant to your life? Are you searching for a better understanding of who God is? Well, you're in the right place. You found the Gary Talks About God podcast. This is a weekly podcast that comes to you from the pulpit of Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church in Germantown, North Carolina. The podcast is hosted by Red Bank Senior Pastor Gary Sanders. Now let's get ready to take that walk through God's Word with our pastor, teacher, and friend. Hey, he's that guy we call Gary. This morning, Matthew chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. Matthew chapter 6. You all know that Alana and I uh, lived in Moscow for a couple of years. Largest city I've ever lived in in my life. Hope that statement to be true for the rest of my life. Uh, I have no desire to live in another city with 12 to 14 million people, depending on how honest they were when they took the census and whether or not they wanted the government in Moscow to know if they were really there. But that's a different question all, all the way around. We arrive in Moscow, and of, of course, we're jet-lagged and we're tired. Um, and about two days later, the first thing that pops into my mind as I'm looking out our, our window is, how in the world do I get around this city? Okay, not the least of which, I don't speak the language. Okay, day, day two, I, uh, God did not bless us with the gift of tongues, so that when our airplane touched down in Moscow, we were fluent in Russian. It would have been nice. So I'm looking out the window going, I have, I have no idea how to navigate this city. And so a couple days, or that same day or a day or two later, I, I asked one of our missionaries who's been there for a long time, I said, look, how do I get around from here? I, I, I need a guide. I, I, I need help. Otherwise, I'm not going to be able to make it. He said, well, what you have to do is, is go down to your little grocery store. And our grocery store was, you, you could see it from our window. He says, go over to the magazine section, and you're going to look in there for a book called Kajdi Dome. And the literal translation of that is every home. And that's exactly what it was. It was a thick magazine that had the city broken down on each page with every home listed and every street number listed. Otherwise, you could never find anything. Our street was about a half a mile from our, or our street address, and the street that our address was named after was a half a mile from our apartment. But it wasn't just that. There were six other apartment buildings in there. So you would have no way of knowing where our apartment, 855 Kashirskaya, my Russian is bad, Chasse. Boy, the accent has gone. You would never find it if you didn't have this guide that said, this is how you get there. I know you're in Matthew chapter 6. However, in Luke chapter 11, verse 1, the disciples come to Jesus because they need a guide. They need some help and understanding how to do something. And so they come and ask Jesus to teach them something. Now, think about that for a minute. If you had the opportunity to ask Jesus to teach you something, what would you ask him to teach you? I thought about that, and I couldn't come up with a good answer. My, my first answer, I think, was very, like, 12-year-old boy, teach me how to walk on water. I mean, <laughs> I mean you know, it, it wasn't very... 
deeply theological, and so I, I don't know. But they, they, they had a question. Their question was, Jesus, teach us how to pray. Basically saying, guide us. We need a God. We need a pattern. We need something to follow so that we can pray. And Jesus says, okay. And in Luke 11, gives a, a, a shorter version of the Lord's Prayer that we have in Matthew chapter 6. He says to them, this is the guide. This is the guide to follow. And while Jesus gives the guide for them to follow, Jesus is also a great master of answering the question and giving them more than they need. Because what we find out is not only is the Lord's Prayer in and of itself the guide to follow, the Lord's Prayer serves as itself a guide also. And this morning we're going to notice that the Lord's Prayer serves as a guide that leads us to worship. So this morning, Matthew chapter 6, just reading two verses, verses 9 and verse 10. So keep in your mind the question, Luke 11, Lord, teach us how to pray. Jesus is talking, Matthew 6, 9 says, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, all three of those this morning are, are imperatives, seeking for something to happen. And all three of those, as we come to the Lord in prayer and, and following that guide that Jesus has given us, what we find out is that it's going to guide us to worship. And the first way that prayer guides us to worship is prayer guides us to revere God's name. Now, you should have been in Sunday school this morning because that was the topic of half our Sunday school class, talking about God's name. Jesus says to the disciples, he says, number one, he says, you need to hallow God's name. The word hallow at its root is, is, is the word for holy. That, that's what it means. It's calling our attention to the fact that God's name is different, is unique from every other name. That's why the fourth commandment says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And when we hear that, our, 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 in, in this day and age, our, our immediate thinking is God's name in the course of swearing. All right? I mean, that, that's, that's what we think about. Now, think of it this way. Have you ever thought that your name is not a swear word? Right? I mean, my, my name is not a swear word. I've never heard anybody say Gary, D-A-M-N. <laughs> I had to get permission to use that in Sunday school this morning. Yeah. My, my name is not used that way. Your name is not used that way. And there, there's a very evident reason, although most people probably subconsciously don't know about it, is because we know that there is power in God's name that does not exist in my name. If any of you are under the mistaken notion that my name has any type of power or pull, the next time you're negotiating a business contract, the next time you're trying to get seated ahead of everybody else at the restaurant, use my name to see what happens. You're still going to wait 
and you're not going to get the deal you wanted. <laughs> My name has no power. But God's name does. Now, as a believer, we understand this. And we automatically know that putting God in front of that word that I just spelled is, is, is automatically off limits. And so we think, well, if I don't do that, I'm, I'm okay. Well, if you read the rest of the fourth commandment, what you find out is it says that the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. It's, it's not just using God's name as a swear word. It's, it's the complete misuse of his name. When his name is a punchline in the joke. It's the expression of OMG when something is just so fabulous you can't think of any other way to describe it. It is the flippant or casual use as a matter of exclamation. There are so many ways to misuse and to not hold God's name hallowed. And the fourth commandment says, don't do it, don't misuse it. And then Jesus comes and says, yeah, that's true, because right, he, he, he's not abolishing the fact that we don't misuse it. He's now coming and saying, hey, you know what you have to do to keep you from misusing it? You have to hold it sacred. You have to understand that it is holy and it is set apart from every other name. His name is different. And it's not just his name. See, we think of names just in one way. The only way that we think of names today is an identifier. So that when you say Gary, Roger doesn't answer. Because you're talking to Gary. That My name doesn't really do anything else for me other than identify who I am. However, in the Old Testament and New Testament and ancient times, a name was bound to the character and activities of the person. So the name went beyond an identifier. And to some extent, we understand this, right? right? You, you don't name your child Adolf. You don't name your daughter Jezebel. There, there, there are some things that we kind of understand. We just we don't really think about it for that, for that reason. And so when Jesus says we're come, we need to hallow God's name, what he's really calling us our attention to is, is the entirety of God. That, the word name there is standing in for everything, for every perfection of God and who God is. It's not just reverence for his name, it's reverence for God. We see this in the opening lines of, of Matthew, right? The angel comes and is, is speaking to Joseph, and he says, You shall call his name Jesus. Why? for he shall save his people from their sins. The name Jesus was inextricably tied to the character and activity for which he was coming. And so here we're told to hallow God's name, both his name, yes, and then by extension the character of who he is. Because he, he's set apart. He is different. Now for us, I think, we have a problem with this. And I, and I don't mean the swearing, okay? I mean, we, we don't use that swear word. Uh, we have a little bit of a hard time with the OMG and the point of exclamation. But I think where we have a problem is where we don't keep God's separation and His holiness as distinct as it needs to be. And, and, and this is why, right? When 
you look at what Jesus did in, in his, his death on the cross, that separation between God and man was destroyed, right? You go again, go to Matthew 27, 51. It tells us when Jesus dies on the cross that the, the, the veil in the temple was split in two from top to bottom. Thereby eliminating that, that distinction from where everything was common from the holy. You now had access to God. right Through the new covenant, through the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So then we go to Hebrews 14, 6, or 4, 16, and I've preached this many times, right? That we can come boldly with, with confidence to the throne of grace, right? Jesus died on the cross for our sins. The temple veil is torn in two. We now have access into the throne room where God is sitting on the throne room. The writer of Hebrews says, go whenever you need it. You can go to God's throne. You can go worship him. You can come. You can approach him. And while we think about that, I think that accessibility can easily lead us to a flippant or careless indifference to God's name and who God is. You continue to read through the book of Hebrews, and you get to Hebrews 12, 28 through 29, right before chapter 13, where it kind of just gives a bunch of bullet points, do this, do this, do this. That, that ending, those ending verses in Hebrews kind of serves as the concluding sentence about the superiority of the new covenant that was inaugurated through the superiority of Jesus' sacrifice. Right? Because that, that's why in, in Hebrews 4 we can come to the throne. But listen to how the writer of Hebrews finishes his thought. He says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 4.16 doesn't teach casual, flippant, rushing in irreverently before God's throne. Hebrews 4 says, that there is a way that we can approach Him. However, when we approach Him, He is still God. Yes, Jesus says He is our Father, and we approach Him as Father, and we have that personal, intimate relationship, but He is still Father. And, and, or excuse me, He is still God. And as such, He is a consuming fire. It's calling our attention to the fact that we need to make sure that we are revering, that we are hallowing God's name, and by extension of His name, all of the characteristics and perfections of who God is. It should cause us pause to, to look at how we're doing this. How are we revering His name and His perfections each and every day of our lives? See, it's not just for this one hour on Sunday mornings. It's for how do we do it at the grocery store? How do we do it at the restaurant? How do we do it at the park? How do we do it at the movie theater, your home, your work? How in our lives are we revering God's name? Jesus says, as you come to pray, 
That, that's the starting point. To be able to revere, and what we're going to find with all of these is to be able to do what we're called to do through the prayer and to demonstrate in our lives, we've got to start in our prayer lives. And it first starts when we come and we revere God's name. But then Jesus tells us that prayer guides us to desire God's kingdom. Your kingdom come. All of you know this this morning, that America is not a kingdom. Which made me wonder, well, how many kingdoms are there in the world? According to a quick Google search of the 249 countries in the world, there are 44 kingdoms. And, and I noticed that uh, the kingdom, which, as you know, means ruled by a monarch, there's, there's a wide variety in those 44 countries, right? For instance, England is ruled by Queen Elizabeth, but ha she has very little actual power. Now, the other end of the spectrum is, is Thailand, which you probably didn't know was a kingdom, has a king. And you better not speak ill about the king, the queen, or anybody in the royal household because that'll get you three years in prison. World of difference. And then, when we come as believers, we're talking about a whole different kingdom. One that is not bound by geography. And Jesus says, hey, when you pray, pray that your kingdom come. It's, it's an expectation, a desire in us for the arrival of God's kingdom on this earth as it is currently occurring in heaven. Right? It's, it's, it's a prayer of expectation. Because we know that right now God is not triumphantly ruling over the world. Do you need any illustrations to know that that point is true? All right? I, I don't think that we do. I, th I think we can pretty much see that. However, as a Christian, that, that should be our, our desire. Our desire should be for God's triumphant rule over His creation. And one day that's going to happen when Jesus comes back and he steps down out of heaven and he establishes his kingdom for all eternity where he will sit on his throne as benevolent ruler over his kingdom. Now this is what has really been the desire of all of God's people since Genesis 3. That promise that there, you know, Genesis 3, the fall, everything is messed up. Everything is distorted. Everything has the curse of sin on it. Man, woman, creation, everything is tainted with sin. And the question becomes, from Genesis 3 on, seen throughout the Psalms, how much longer, oh God, how much longer is this world going to stay like this? I mean, let's, let's be honest. Would anybody be really upset if God's kingdom started now <laughs> and all the crazy and the junk going on in the world today ended? I, I, I for one would not be. The psalmist cry, how much longer? The disciples ask Jesus, right, have you come to, to inaugurate your kingdom? How much longer? See, there is a desire for God's kingdom to be established in all its glory in all its perfection. When you go to the book of Romans, and you go to Romans chapter 8, 
Paul writes about our present sufferings in, in verse 18 and, and, and tells us how to think on the sufferings and he keeps going on and he starts talking about the fall and he talk, talks about creation bound by the futility and then verse 22 he says for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now child the creation is is, is longing for the day where it is freed from the fall now, again, we're kind of talking about this again in Sunday school. I keep telling you, you've got to be in Sunday school. Talking about the beauty of God's creation. Even in the fall, we can go out and we can look and we can see the beauty and the majesty of God's creation. But that's not creation in its perfect form. It, it wants to be set free from that. So creation is groaning. Now, as you think about that, we're part of creation too, Right? That's why Paul continues in verse 23, he says, And not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we await eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. What we are groaning for is for the final establishment of God's kingdom, where in His kingdom our adoption is made full, where in His kingdom our bodies are redeemed so that we can live with Him. But and the bottom, the underneath line there is, the kingdom. The rest of that only happens when God's kingdom is established. We long for that. However, Jesus also told us at the very beginning of Matthew 4, verse 17, He says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God are, are used interchangeably in Matthew. They're the same thing. So we have this, this, this tension that we keep finding in our lives as believers between what is going to come and what is real now. And we see that we are, we are waiting, we desire God's kingdom and all its perfection and all its finality to come and to be established. At the same time, it has been established and it's here now. And Matthew connects the kingdom with repentance. Because with the advent of Jesus Christ into history, God made a dramatic entrance. And though his kingdom is not a geographic reality yet, it is a really reality expressed through people coming and repenting from their sins and turning to Jesus as their Savior. So when we pray for God's kingdom to come, yes, it is the finality, the, the eschaton, God, you come set it back up. At the same time, what we're praying for is for God's kingdom to come now to people now to be made new creations in Christ. So that when somebody becomes that new creation in Christ, what we're seeing is the actualization of the kingdom of God now in our midst. Because the kingdom of God is indeed growing it's also a prayer of commitment Luke 9 62 Jesus is discussing the the cost of following him and he states that no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God it's hard to plow when you're looking behind you you got to look at where you're going and Jesus is saying that using that metaphor you can't pursue God's kingdom if you're constantly looking back at the kingdom of earth and desiring that. 
He says, you've got to put it behind you. As Paul says, forgetting everything that is behind, but straining for what lies ahead. We, we, we press on. It's, it's a commitment that is lived out here and now. And then finally, Jesus says, we've got to make sure that the, the kingdom of God is above everything else we desire. Matthew 6.33, seek ye first the kingdom of God. I mean, we have many desires. Right? You got a desire, I got desires. We have a lot of desires. Jesus says above all those desires, there, there, there should be one. And that is for God's kingdom. So when we pray, we, we come to God and say, we want your kingdom to be done. Your kingdom come. We, we want to see people coming to Christ. We want to see new creations. We want to see people who are committed to the kingdom and discipleship. We want to see people seeking your kingdom above everything else. And we want to see your kingdom come as you come back and reestablish it here on this earth. And as people pray that, as, as you pray that, as believers in Christ pray that, what's going to happen is that the kingdom of God is going to impact and change our homes, our work, our community, and beyond. So while it's not fully realized, we can see the kingdom of God growing because there are new people coming into the kingdom and our communities are being impacted as we make that prayer. But then finally, prayer guides us to seek God's will. And this, of course, ties directly into the second. We are to pursue God's will. Part of God's will is His kingdom to come. So we pursue His will. And you read through the, the book of Matthew, and what you find out is that to do God's will really means to be a disciple. That, that's, that's what Matthew is, is talking about. It says to God and then to the world that when I say Jesus is my Lord, He, he really is. I will live my life in service to Him, to obey what He has, has told us to do, the do's and the don'ts. Moreover, it means that I will set aside my will for His. And it's a decision that we've got to make daily to submit our will to God's. Even Jesus, and, and not go get into the inter-Trinitarian uh, interaction there, but, but you know, Matthew 26, Jesus goes and he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, Gethsemane before his, his crucifixion. And he says, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Verse 44, we're told, told three times he prays that. Not my will, but your will. For God's will to be done. Jesus says as we pray, we need to pray that. Now, I'm not going to ask you to, 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 to hold up your hands because if I did, I'm going to be put to shame and I don't want to be embarrassed this morning. But how many of you find that prayer easy to pray? I, I, I don't. 
I don't. That, that, that's a hard prayer to pray. And I know that y'all don't have problems with this, but I do because I want my will to be done. I, I, I want my will to be done. Just so everybody knows, my life would be so much easier if, if y'all would just do what I, I want you to do. If everybody and everything just submitted to my will, and each and every one of you are laughing or scoffing because you're going, no, Gary, it'd be easier if it was my will. <laughs> right? It just, it, it, it's easier. We, we, we want that. Be, and how many times have we said that, thought that? Man, it'd be so much easier at work if they'd just do it this way. <laughs> All right? It, it, it's, it's, it's hard. Because we are not a, a, a submissive people in any stretch of the imagination. And to come and say, hey, hey, God, I want to I submit my will to, to, to yours. Which, by definition, means that if I want this and you want this, then I have to put aside what I want for what you want. And then, to top it off, it can't be, okay, fine, God, I'll do it. <laughs> Not all, I mean, they, we, 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 we got to do it joyfully. Yay! Sure, God. I mean, it, it, it's hard. How many of you find it easy to be joyful when you don't get your way? Right? I, I, I think most of us remember what it was like as a kid or when we had kids and parented, what it looks like when you don't get your way. It's not pretty. <laughs> It is not a thing of joy. I love my kids dearly, but I, I, I testified this morning, I've never heard one of them say, okay, Dad, not my will, yours, and I'm going to do it happily and joyfully. <laughs> just, it, it just doesn't happen. And so we're told, we're, we're told to do this. How in the world can we, can we do that? Because we're praying to our Father. That's how. We're praying to our Father who wants the best for us. Who, who loves us so much that He sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. Our Father who, who loves us so much transforms us into a new creation. A Father who gives us assurance that says, Look, everything will be worked together for good. Because you're called according to my purpose. And if we understand that, then we can joyfully submit to the will of God in our lives. Because he wants the very, very best for us. And as we pray that, what we're going to discover is our greatest joy. You want to know what your greatest joy is in life? And, and it's not anything that you just thought of. The greatest joy in a believer's life is found when we are obeying God's will. Because that's what we are created to do. And we will find, and you will find your greatest joy in doing exactly what God created you to do. He says we are to desire, or we are to pursue God's will. And if you notice, watch how this all works together. The very last part of the first three, which go together, says, on earth as it is in heaven. Because in heaven right now, God's name is hallowed. 
You know, the Archangel Michael's not going to slip up and use God's name wrong. God's kingdom is already established. He's, he's sitting on the throne. God's will is, is being accomplished. So when we come to pray, what we're praying and, and leading us to worship is for all of that to be true universally on this earth as it is in heaven. And for it to be universally true on this earth, it needs to be individually true in our lives as well. For it to be said that Red Bank is, is a church that reveres God's name, that desires God's kingdom, and that seeks God's will, it needs to be true of all of us together. That's how it becomes true of God's church at Red Bank. And the starting point, Jesus says, as we come to pray, and our prayer is going to lead us into worshiping, because when we revere his name, when we seek his kingdom, and, and we desire his will, that is worship. And as we worship him in our prayer lives, what's going to happen is it's going to spill over into our daily lives and transform us to look more like our Savior so that when the world looks on us individually and collectively as a body of believers, they can see that transformation and they can see that revering of His name and that seeking His kingdom and desiring His will that becomes the starting point that changes the community and changes the community as one that will desire those same things. So you got a chain. Starts with prayer. That is in of itself an act of worship that leads us to worship. But then, as we pray and worship in prayer, it leads us to behave and act in a manner that reflects our prayer and the worship that we just committed ourselves to. How do we pray? What is our guide? What is the guide that's going to lead us to worship and leading us to a transformed life? A prayer that says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the starting point. You've been listening to the Gary Talks About God podcast. Are you looking for a church? Well, Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church is a community of believers who exist to glorify God and see transformed lives through the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can find us on the web at www.redbankmbc.com. Also, come visit us on Sunday at 8104 Red Bank Road in Germantown, North Carolina. Did you like this podcast? We put one out each and every week, so don't forget to subscribe. We hope this has been a blessing to you, and we thank you for listening.